Okay, so this is a, a little handout. It's sort of our guide for the next 28 days. Um, on the back of it, it's got our themes for the week. Um, each week kind of has a different theme that we're going to be praying through. Um, if you open it up, there's a campaign schedule for the next four weeks. Wednesday, each Wednesday night this month, we'll be gathering together for a prayer and worship event here, um, right here in the sanctuary. Um, Sundays, of course, we're going to be gathering here at 10 o'clock. We're going to end the campaign four weeks from now with a celebration Sunday, some testimonies, and y'all say family feast. Come on. That's not super exciting. This is a big deal. We've not had a family feast in like a year apart from Thanksgiving. This is awesome. This is like the DNA of King's Church is having a big meal together. So we're going to end it as safe as we can four weeks from now. Okay, some tips. Uh, I want you to read this. You don't have to do it right now, but, but as soon as you can, open it up and read the inside. Why corporate prayer? This is why we believe in the power of prayer and fasting. Some seven keys there um, to, to why we practice corporate prayers. On the other page, some benefits. I'm not going to take the time to read this, but I want you to put this in your Bible. Put it with your journal, whatever you've got, whatever material you carry with you for your, your, your devotional life. Go back to this this week. And there's also some tips for fasting. I want you to pay attention to these because I'm asking if you're part of the King's Church family, I want you to commit to pray and I want you to commit to fast. Fasting does not have to be, typically it's, it's fasting from something food related. That's the normal thing, you know, but it doesn't have to be that. If you've got dietary concerns and you're not able to do that, there are other things that you can fast from. So I want you to make that decision. That, I'm not going to ask you to sign a card or write down what you're doing, but I want you to make that commitment to the Lord, to your family, to your spouse, your kids, whatever it is, that we, we're going to do this together as a faith family, as a church family. We're going to go deep into prayer, deep into fasting, it's going to be challenging, but it's going to be so full of joy and reward. I promise. We're going to see all kinds of breakthroughs. We're also going to be sending out daily devotions that many of you are writing. Many of you have committed to write a daily devotion. We send it out via email. We're going to try to get it on, on text. Um, also try to post it on social media. Um, if those three ways don't, don't fit into where you are, come and let me know, and we'll, we'll, we'll try to find another way to do that. Um, so, but uh, if, if you want to write something, you've not signed up for a slot, you can come and talk to me about it. I'll tell you where to do that as well. So I think that's it. 28 days of prayer. I'm excited about it. Speaking of prayer, we had, we've got a friend that's here who's going to come and share with us. I love this guy. Dr. David Thomas is here, and he's going to come and minister. He's going to come and speak to us. Uh, I'm, I'm going to remember my bullet points here. He, for 12 years, was a senior pastor of Centenary United Methodist here in Lexington. So he's got the heart of a pastor. He's an incredibly gifted, uh, incredibly gifted man of God. After that, he went on to get his Ph.D., studying sort of the effects of intercessory prayer in renewal and revival movements in history. Is that right? Is that kind of sum it up? Dude's got a Ph.D. in prayer. Oh, my word. And not only has he studied it, he's lived it. He's lived it, and he's led churches. He's led teams through this. He just has such a heart for the kingdom of God. He's currently working uh, with Asbury Seminary, the seedbed project there, um, helping to do that very thing, helping just to, to, to raise up this initiative for, uh, for prayer in the local church. So we're honored to have, uh, to have you. Come on up. Um, let's, let's, uh, let's welcome him and honor him, and then I want to pray for him. Y'all stretch a hand out if you would.
Lord Jesus, I thank you for this man of God. I thank you, Lord, for what you've birthed in him. Lord, this heart for revival and the heart for prayer that precedes revival. God, we want to be a revival Mm -hmm. church. Mm -hmm. We do, because we know that's close to your heart. We want to be a praying church. So we pray just like the apostles pray. Lord, teach us to pray. Open our hearts, open our minds to understand, to respond, to be transformed by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning. It's really great to be with you today. What a blessing to worship with you. That was amazing. My heart is so refreshed. Been in the presence of God with you. And I uh, just want to say how much I love King's Church. I've been learning about King's Church for a long time uh, through a friend of mine named Keegan Weatherford, who's been kind of a. Some of you all know Keegan. And uh, in fact, I was just on the phone with him this week. You know, they're out in the Portland area now, but. Uh, I've tracked with him all along the way for quite a while now. I so appreciated getting to know Brad. I love your pastor, love his heart, and I love your heart. I love that your heart is for revival, for awakening, which to me is the only honest way to frame reality anymore. We are living in such an unprecedented, accelerating, intensifying moral freefall. We are right now just experiencing a kind of secularization that is just speeding away from us. We've been, it's all been accelerated so much over this past year. The challenge is so enormous and the church in America is so weak to face it. We can't program ourselves back into vitality. We can't educate. We can't legislate. We can't build prisons fast enough. We can't do it. Any, it's, we are, we're, I think we've, we've known this for such a long time, but now we are face against the wall around the fact that unless the Lord returns or there is an awakening, there's really no solution. We have to have something from the hand of God. And I think, I'm just so grateful that there are churches like yours that are just willing to speak openly and honestly in that way. To just sort of frame it. Okay, we don't need just a lot of new studies and new programs and new this and new that. That we can somehow ingenuity our way out of this. We can somehow energy our way out of this. Our ideas, our efforts, we'll figure it out. We can do this. No. We'll keep giving God our very best. Absolutely. But we are posturing ourselves in a place of open, honest desperation. God, only you. Only you. That's what we've been singing for the last hour. Only you. And around that, I I just commend you for this 28 days of prayer. This, it, it seems to me more clear all the time. This is calling number one of the church. That we be a community of intercessors. That we are, a, we are houses of prayer. Our lives are houses of prayer. Our families, houses of prayer. So thank you for doing this. And thank you for allowing me to be with you as you get ready to jump in tomorrow. That's what we want to think about today. Is just to sort of prepare our hearts for this, this journey over the next four weeks. That Joshua 3, 5 verse, which is such a centerpiece of these 28 days of prayer. That we consecrate ourselves... For the Lord will come and work tomorrow. 
We, come, we sanctify, we set, apart, set ourselves apart. So that's what I am invite you to think about is how we could do that today, how we could begin to move in that way. And around that, I'd like to invite you, if you have your Bibles and want to open a Bible app, to read a psalm with me. This is Psalm 126. I'm going to focus this morning on the fifth verse of this. But Psalm 126, such a beautiful image of revival, of renewal, and what brings us there. Okay? So open your eyes and ears, open your hearts to hear the Word of God. When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like men who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Now hear hear this heart cry. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Here's the verse. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. Here, verse 5 once more. It's familiar to you. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. These words are true, and they can be trusted. Would you bow your hearts with me? I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you. Oh, my soul rejoice. Take joy, my king, in what you hear, and let it be a sweet sound in your ear. Amen. Awakening, what we've been talking about here for the last minute or or so. Awakening is so vast, so captivating, so energizing, so glorious. Really flowing underneath the life of our society is this deep undercurrent of awakening history. Awakening, revival history. Some of you, I'm sure, familiar with this, but just briefly. In the colonial era, we had the first great awakening, which began in three theaters, really. There was this in Scotland, led by George Whitfield, in England, led by John and Charles Wesley, and in colonial America, led by Jonathan Edwards. In Northampton, Massachusetts, which was sort of the epicenter in that time, in the early 1700s, Edwards said that it, it was seen that, the, the, that that whole community was full of the presence of God in almost every house, in his words. Spin, that spread to more than 20 communities all throughout western Massachusetts and Connecticut. And then when George Whitfield came, who was kind of like the roving lightning rod of all those three areas... That awakening rose up to continued for about 12 to 15 years all throughout the colonies, all throughout what was our country at that time. All churches grew. There was the beginning of missionary expansion. Six of the nine colonial colleges, what we refer to today as the Ivy League, all were the product 
of, of that awakening. A distinctive American theology began to rise up from Edwards' reflections, who was the, really the great intellectual luminary of colonial America. More research has been done on Jonathan Edwards than any other colonial figure, more than Benjamin Franklin, more than George Washington. He was that brilliant both in head and heart. But then those revival embers really kind of began to die down during the Revolutionary War. The war kind of sucked the life and all the young kind of out of our society. But after a while, the spirit began to fan that back into flame into the Second Great Awakening, which again developed in three phases, began with the camp meeting movement. Some of you all maybe have been out to Bourbon, to Bourbon County, Paris, the Cane Ridge Meeting House, which was the real... Uh, kind of epicenter of that initial atomic bomb of divine love that opened out across the frontier when 20 to 30,000 people gathered for seven days of 24-hour preaching all by word of mouth there centered around that little meeting house that you can still see under a stone shrine outside of Paris today. Then there was the more learned yet still very warm-hearted revival work that was going on all over Boston and and uh, that sort of New England area led by Lyman Beecher. But then there was that third area in upstate New York, led by Charles Finney, who was an attorney, a layman, who entered into ministry, and he brought some of that frontier zeal along with sort of that learned credibility and brought that together in New York for what became 40 to 45 years of unbroken revival and uh, awakening work. Beecher said that Finney's meeting in Rochester, New York, and I'm quoting, was the greatest work of God, the greatest revival of religion that the world had ever seen in so short a time. Completely transformed that whole era. American churches multiplied fourfold during the Second Great Awakening. The missionary expansion was like un, unlike anything that had ever been seen in the history of Christianity. So much social reform just spilled out in pulsating circles, just rippling out of all the, the revival meetings. There was so much reform in prisons, pushing back against child labor, work for women and for their opportunity. The first co-educational college in America was Finney's Oberlin. He was the president of Oberlin College in Ohio, which was really the throbbing center of the Second Great Awakening. Historians have attributed the abolitionists. They were so zealous that slavery had to end now. There would not be sort of this graduated process. There was, it had to stop. It was wrong. It had to stop. And a lot of that secular historians have studied to say that it really was the immediatism, the, in the necessary decision tonight of all the revival meetings. Where will your soul be tonight if you were to die? Tonight you need to make a decision. Tonight it was that same sort of edge that really prompted the end of slavery now. Could go on and on. The YMCA, countless colleges and universities, the American Bible Society, so much good that we still learn from and grow from and experience today all you trace it back from those streams to where it was bubbling up out of the ground it was coming up out of that second great awakening awakenings are this vast they are this great so captivating so glorious there is this built-in self-correcting reanimating capacity in the christian movement due to the church to the spirit's residence in the church 
all, really, you can understand the whole history of Christianity. You can look at the, the entire story of the church as successive awakening movements, just like pearls on a strand, bringing us back to Jesus, back to who he, all the way back to the greatest awakening of Pentecost. We love it. We yearn for it. We know we've got to have it. We're desperate for it every day, more every day in our culture, in our churches, in our families, in ourselves. We want to sow for a great awakening. King's Church wants, it, wants to be a seed, as we were saying, that would die in the ground and rise up into something like this, something this fruitful, a work of God in our day. But what about that sowing? What would it be to sow for a great awakening, to sow for a revival in our day? We could tell spine-tingling stories all morning. Great stories of revival triumphs and heroes. But in all honesty, where does it come from? Where does it originate? Where does awakening start? How do we sow for a great awakening? That's the question that I took in this research project that Brad was mentioning. Um, I, to, um, as a part of my, this, this post-grad program that I was doing, it was about 10 years ago now, I went to the islands of Lewis and Harris in the Outer Hebrides of far northwest Scotland, which um, I was looking for anyone there who might still remember something about the Hebridean revival. I don't know... If any of you have ever heard of this, it was a meeting that went on from 1949 to 1952 in this part of Scotland. The key leader, Duncan Campbell, was at a meeting in Edinburgh, and uh, he was there preaching. There had been two sisters, y'all maybe know this story, Peggy and Christine Smith, one crippled with arthritis, one blind in their 80s, who had been praying around the clock for this revival, for their community, and they prayed specifically for this preacher. He was fluent in Gaelic. He had the right heart. They knew he was the one to come. They wrote him. He said, no, I'm too booked out. No, I can't come. Wrote him. He wouldn't come. So they kept on praying. He was at a meeting in Edinburgh, and he felt this un avoidable, compelling, that he had to go to the Hebrides. He was getting up to speak, and he said to the host, I'm going to need to go to the Hebrides. And uh, this man said, well, yes, of course, we'll be glad to help you arrange some travels. Uh, you know, after the meeting is done today, we'll help you, help you with that. He said, no, you don't understand. I'm going to have to go. And he literally got up and walked off that stage and took the next train, made his way up, landed there, and uh, asked a boy on the dock to help him find a nearest pastor. They, he brought him to these two sisters. And they, he said, okay, I've get, I have ten day, I'll give you ten days. And he ended up staying for more than three years. This, um, I, I was able to, there's one great book that tells this story. I mean, historians say that this maybe was the last real awakening in the Western world. And uh, um, there's a book called uh, Sounds from Heaven by Colin and Mary Peckham, who were eyewitnesses. And in that book, they include 23 eyewitnesses who were there to describe what it was like to live under an open heaven. Um, I took a little bit of my grant money, went up there, spent a week, and met 11 of those 23. They had been converted in their teens. They're now in their 80s. Half of those 11 now have gone to glory. 
I was so glad that I, I was able to sit in the, this little church of Scotland in a town called Barvis in uh, Scotland and listen. And I would ask them, so tell me what it was. What, was it Campbell's preaching? Or was it the music? Was there some sort of model that you follow? With some sort of format? And they said, well, yes, to per- all of it. That was all very important. But to a person, every one of these people, as I would sit with them, they said, no, there was something deeper. And they described a kind of posture of heart that was so true, especially among their parents and grandparents. They said, we remember waking up in the night, hearing our parents crying. We would come out of bed and and go over the stairwell and look down and see them on their faces, sobbing. And we would listen, and they were calling out the names of the young men who had gone off to World War II and had come home, and the faith of their childhood had been decimated. They were crying out for families and kids and their, for revival. They said, well, I remember stories of, they, they said, we would go out and we would be playing outside and we would hear shouting and we would go toward the barn. We would hear it in the barn. We would look through the cracks in the barn and see our grandfathers on their knees, arms upstretched, just shouting in prayer. Things like, God, we know you are a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. Today, we hold you to your covenant We must have you. We must have your help. Our children are are wayward and they must come back to us. This kind of, of praying, they were shouting and crying out to God. There was a kind of urgency, a kind of agony, a kind of heart rending desire. These people, as I, as I would listen to them there in Scotland, they, they were the first that I'd ever heard use this word travailing prayer. It was all, they said almost as though that, that, this, that God was, was birthing something. The Holy Spirit groaning in them. The, the, like a woman travailing in labor. Like Paul in Galatians 4.19. As if in, travailing as if in the pains of childbirth that Christ might be formed in you. And I can tell you all, ever since I looked into the eyes of these men and women who once saw what we are so desperate now to see. I have become convinced that, the, that the, the real native soil of awakening is the plowed up hearts of men and women willing to receive this calling, this gift of travail. This manner of prayer, Psalm 126, verse 5. Those who sow with tears will reap with sounds of joy. Now, there's nothing I'm saying here that you all don't already know and believe. That prayer is the precursor to the work of God. That somehow prayer is always the preparatory, anticipating act of awakening. That's not a new idea. But I'm wondering, this type of praying, I'm wondering if it has just sort of been lost on us in the American church. Certainly not in Latin America, in Asia, in Africa, where the church is still at the vanguard of changing society and transforming lives. But has it sort of been forgotten here? And yet we know this was the praying of the Hebrews who groaned in slavery and cried out, Exodus 2.23 says, and, and God heard their groaning and remembered His covenant. 
This was the prayer of Hannah for a child, overcome in prayer to the point of being misunderstood as intoxicated in her petitions. No, I was not drinking wine or beer, 1 Samuel 1.15. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. This, when he heard the news of Jerusalem's brokenness, Nehemiah sat down and wept and then fainted and then fasted and prayed for days. This is the prayer of the prophets, that we give God no rest, Isaiah 62, that we cling to God like a belt clings to a person's waist, Jeremiah 13, that we go speedily to pray before the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts, Zechariah 8. You know how Elijah climbed to the, to the top of Mount Carmel, bent down to the ground and put his face between his knees to pray for relief from drought. We know scholars say that that was the posture of a woman in childbirth in that, that time, that ancient time. Elijah knew exactly the posture he was taking and what it meant. Daniel 9.3 says that he, that he turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition for Jerusalem. This is the prayer of the Psalms. Streams of tears flow from my eyes for your law is not obeyed. Psalm 119. Day and night I cry out before you. Psalm 88.1. Turn your ear to my cry. This was the praying of Jesus who offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him. Hebrews 5.7. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. He blessed those with, who, who had spiritual thirst and hunger. He taught those who followed him to keep on asking and seeking and knocking. He told parables to illustrate to his disciples that they should pray and not give up. He healed ten with leprosy who called out in a loud voice, Luke 17, the only child of a father who came to Jesus saying, teacher, I beg you to look upon my son. And whenever two blind men who called out for Jesus' help and they were rebuked by the disciples and Matthew 20 says that they shouted all the louder. And there is no deeper view into the heart of Jesus than Gethsemane, where it was the agony of prayer that drew the first blood of the atonement. This is the praying of the early church cleaving to one another in expectancy before Pentecost, earnestly praying to God for Peter's release from prison. This was the prayer of Paul who implored the Romans, by the love of the Spirit, join me in my struggle, literally agonize with me by praying to God for me, Romans 15, 30. He commended Epaphras to the Colossians as always wrestling in prayer for you. This is prayer in the Holy Spirit who intercedes for us through wordless grace. And in the Revelation, the only recorded prayer of the Holy Spirit that we have is the urgent cry, come, which when united with the church is, and is addressed to Jesus, beckoning his three-time repeated promise, I come quickly. The Bible seems utterly unfamiliar with casual prayer, prayer of the mouth and not the heart, travail. A kind of burdened, focused, pressing. Seems closer to the throbbing core of prayer in Scripture. John Wesley, who really maybe was the leader of the the most helpful model of awakening, really. That 18th century revival that just pivoted that entire society. We have so much to learn from it. John Wesley, inside the first several months of his own new birth, went to Germany 
He'd been influenced by the Moravians on a boat trip back from the Atlantic, across the Atlantic. And he went to Herenu to see what was going on in this colony of these persecuted believers. And there he witnessed a kind of prayer that had just rocked him. He, he was used to praying with the Book of Common Prayer. It was Church of England. But he came back from that. And on New Year's Eve, 1738, he was gathered with George Whitfield, his brother Charles, and 60 others at a little meeting in Fetter Lane in London. And he writes this in his journal. About three in the morning as we were continuing, instant in prayer, the power of God came mightily upon us insomuch that many cried out and many fell to the ground. As soon as we recovered a little bit from that awe and amazement at the presence of His Majesty, we broke out with one voice. We praise Thee, O God. We acknowledge Thee to be the Lord. A little later on, Wesley writes this. I called on a woman who was sorrowing as without hope for her son who had wandered to folly. I advised her to wrestle with God for his soul. And in two days, he brought home the wandering sheep, fully convinced of the error of his ways. Wrestling. Like Jacob for the blessing. Wrestling was a favorite image of both Edwards and Finney, of the prayer that sows for awakening. They believed it was not irreverent to be obstinate, to grapple, to take up the blessed struggle of prayer, Edwards called it. Both of them understood how the Spirit would sometimes brood over a church or over a community as He did over chaos in creation. Just heavy, like we were singing, resting over a place, brooding over a place, conceiving new life in that place. But it was the church's role then to pray that new life, those new births into reality, conceived by the Spirit labored for and delivered by the church. That's why they referred to the church as the mother of the converted. I love that phrase. The mother of the converted, the helpmate of God. It was the church's labor, the church's prayer. And that prayer could sound like a woman in childbirth. These were intercessors who had been literally seized by the raw facts of our desperate need for God. Duncan Campbell used to preach, I'm quoting him, let us be honest in the presence of God and get right into the grips of reality. Have I a vision of our desperate need? Oh, for a baptism of honesty, for a gripping sincerity that will move us. The great awakenings brim over with stories of petitioners for whom this honesty produced an agony in prayer, becoming daring, unrelenting, insistent in prayer. They write of sweating and heaving and fasting. Finney emphasized praying until they had, we had prayed through. You know what that's like? Praying until, praying through to assurance we've been heard. Somehow that there's just this witness in my spirit that I've been heard. God has answered, and it is, it is real in heaven. I will wait and watch for it on earth. It seems almost inappropriate to keep asking. I feel in my spirit I need to start thanking. I've prayed through. 
most important to the leaders of Awakenings was that none of this courage and audacity and determination in prayer could be sort of hyped up, sort of self-generated, manufactured, muscled up. It was and is the ministry of the Holy Spirit operating as the spirit of prayer. This was the key spiritual gift. This was the essential charism of awakening. God himself, by his spirit, providing to us the discernment, the faith, the energy, the language, the very breath, the groaning for the seeds of awakening. That's how travailing prayer could surge up like a geyser, a spiritual geyser of overflowing holy love for God and for this world Jesus died to save. That really is what travailing prayer is. It is Gethsemane love. Gethsemane love. Sometimes the conduct of the wicked drives Christians to prayer, Charles Finney wrote. Sometimes the conduct of the wicked drives Christians to prayer, breaks them down, makes them sorrowful and tenderhearted so that they can weep day and night. And instead of scolding the wicked, they pray earnestly for them then you may expect a revival, Finney wrote. Indeed, it is begun already. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. You know, I don't know anybody who doesn't deep down feel that they should be praying more. Somehow be praying better. Certainly myself included. And here we are tomorrow, starting four weeks. And that talking about this manner of prayer is not intended to give anybody a guilt trip. Guilt, I have found, is a very short-lived, shallow incentive for prayer. But I am wondering... If there's anybody here today yearning for a better day that would give God an openness of heart to begin praying less casually for it. I don't know, some people believe that awakening is just, it's implausible. I mean, the times are too different. The forces that are arrayed against revival are just too tough. Our context is too resistant. And thinking about travailing prayer is not trying to reconstruct the past. We're not trying to go back to the 1800s and get something like, you know, just to sort of act that out. But listen, every context for awakening has always seemed entirely impossible. I mean, the gospel languished under heresy and distortion for nearly a thousand years until Luther nailed those theses on the Wittenberg door. It seemed utterly impossible, completely entrenched. Those in the past who had the same desire for God's deliverance as we do believed that this manner of prayer, which, yes, can take long. It's, 
It requires perseverance. There's delay. It's difficult. But it causes us to prize the gift and love the giver all the more. Something about this is what dismantles pride. The revival leaders used to say that if God gave it quick and easy to our prayers, we would begin to have the temptation to think, well, it was something I did. Something about my prayer just came so quick. It must have been the way I did it so well, so right. But, but, But when we labor in it and yearn for it and stay in it, little by little pride just starts falling apart, breaks down in us until the point that we are really ready to receive. And we know it is all God. 100% Him. The delay purifies and humbles the church, making us ready to receive. Not turning prayer into a work. Not in any way earning God's favor with more volume or more drama in our prayers, but being willing to be more experimental in our praying, less inhibited, more united in the true spirit of unity that the church always is waited for, like what we see at Pentecost, those ethnicities, all 13 ethnicities there united miraculously together, like at Azusa Street, that great outpouring of the Holy Spirit, William Seymour, the son of freed slaves, blind in one eye, had been so mishandled and mistreated as a black man, but yet was still absolutely unswervingly committed that he would be black and white praying together. He got so much scorn over that, so much in the press, so much against him. But he said, it will be black and white together here at the Apostolic Faith Mission at 312 Azusa Street. There's something about that that is so Pentecostally true, so loved by God to see men and women for whom we know that these walls of hostility can be torn down by the cross of Christ, then we dwell together in that unity. That kind of unity of spirit, so far as I know myself, John Wesley wrote, I have no more concern for the reputation of Methodism, this great revival that happened in those days, than, or for my own reputation, than for the reputation of Prester John, who was a well-known character, the butt of jokes in that day. Listen. A healed culture and a renewed church and restored lives, you know, that is messy, costly stuff. To people like us who love that and long for it, reputation is the first thing to go. This kind of praying, this kind of leading, as we've said earlier, Jesus taught our seeds have to die. Before anything will grow. And maybe it comes to mind. Joshua 3, 5. Consecrate yourselves. What needs to get buried. February the 28th. For prayer. To rise March 1st in this month. What is it? Today. Distraction. Pride. An attitude of expertise. Self-sufficiency. Being hip, affluence, avoidance, ease. I wonder, what else will it take for us to move into a direction of travailing prayer? I mean, just how bad will it have to get? I'm wondering, I don't know what you think. Has... The American church touched bottom? I wonder, have we touched it yet? 
Much less have we knelt in it and stuck there until God comes. But I'm wondering, how bad will it have to get? I wonder if there are any sowers for awakening here today willing to regain this awakening sensibility. This grip of empirical honesty that Campbell spoke of. Sometimes I think we can read the trends and look around and see what's happening and sound clever in conversation and you know just sort of engage it and then just kind of move on and just get busy and roll on in life. But is there anybody here today... Who, who is just seized by it to the point that it's a heartache I cannot shake until I pray it out. Anyone willing to take on a knee-bending sympathy with God? That was Charles Finney's phrase. Finney believed that when we pray with God's heart, that we're just... We pray about our prayer. We don't just sort of race into it, but we, God, how do you see? What's going on? Help me to, I just want to ask you to form my prayer, author prayer in me. Give me your heart, and I'll give utterance to that. Add faith, and we'll pray it in unity and watch you go to work. But that sympathy with God. Finney believed that the, that the prayer meeting was more important than the preaching meeting. In the second great awakening. In fact, he would say, you know, I, I don't mind what you do with our preaching meetings. You can come, bring a friend if you wish. But don't come to our prayer meetings without an unsaved friend. Don't come. Always bring some unbelieving guest. Because he believed and always said this. That if someone who doesn't know Jesus can walk in and see the church praying for them. They'll get a picture of God's heart toward them. They'll see that agony. They'll see that desire and yearning. They'll see that compassion and hope. And they'll think, you mean that's how God sees me? He feels that toward me? Prayer was the proof of God's love in the awakenings. It was like apologetics. To witness prayer was to see the heart of God. Anyone here willing to let God give you a share of that kind of holy love, voice first, not in pulpits and blogs and books and tweets and newsletters and workshops, but in closets? I wonder if there are any followers of Jesus here today willing to explore this gift of travail that has preceded the awakening works of God. I was at a leadership conference Let's see, it was 2014, so it's coming up on seven years ago now. It was in London. It was with Alpha. We have a big leadership conference in the Royal Albert Hall. 6,000 people all there. The speaker came to, to speak, and he felt sort of prompted to engage us all in a season of silence, which we did. We were just waiting on God, and it went on for kind of an awkwardly long time, more than 15 minutes, until finally... A few voices around that huge, grand hall, the Royal Albert Hall, began to open up and rise up in what I can only describe as contractions of prayer. Sobbing, moaning, pleading, travailing. No words. This speaker shepherded those moments perfectly. It really was as though the Spirit it was, was giving voice through some to our collective heart cry for His love and power in our day. I spoke later that 
time with Pete Gregg, who's a writer and leader in 24-7 prayer. He was there. He commented on how he's become more and more persuaded that the Spirit is wanting to reintroduce this gift to the West. That we're maybe growing more ready to reclaim it. And I've wondered about that. This gift of travail, which was so so crucial for so long. I mean, this really was the way that the church prayed for for over two centuries in our country. I've wondered if the Spirit maybe is sort of withdrawn. Because so few were wanting it. So few were felt the need for it. Would there be anyone here willing today to explore this kind of ministry, this gift by which the Spirit gives our prayers integrity? I mean, that really is what travailing prayer is. It's just prayer with integrity. How can we sort of see the need and diagnose it as urgent as it is and then pray about it casually, just kind of pray lightly about it? How can there be that kind of disconnect between our understanding and our praying? Travailing prayer just brings expression into kind of a proportionality with our understanding. It gives voice at the level of reality. Six years of my life was spent day after day just trying to understand this, drilling down these deep wells into our awakening history. And and I'll be honest, I'm convinced very little may ever happen to make things better in our church or in our world until more of us step into this. Would all of us here be willing to give up less easily in prayer, to take more risks in prayer, to be bold and tenacious again? That may mean becoming healed of a past disappointment in prayer which could be maybe one of the most important things for the February 28th moment before the March 1 beginning. Just to let the Spirit of God put some healing balm on that disappointment so we can step back in and say, God, I, I just return to perseverance and great hope and, and whatever it may take to move, whatever this would call upon in you who yearn for a better day. Is there anyone here today with a heart for awakening who would be willing to sow for it? Travailing prayer is not the only thing we do. But it is the first thing. And the most important thing. You people who are now crying are blessed. Jesus promises in Luke 6. You people who are crying are blessed because you will laugh with joy. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. That is God's promise to travailing prayer. And He is too worthy. Awakening is too beautiful. And our need for it is too great to settle for anything less. So King's Church, this morning is a day of consecration. 
of consecration of our lives to prayer. And I'm wondering if we could, before we leave today, allow the Lord to help us in that. You know, Psalm 66, 18 says, it's a powerful sentence. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. There's so much in the Bible about this. Sometimes I remember when my children were young and they would talk in ways that were pleasing to me, sarcastic or whatever. I would say to them, now, don't, don't you talk to me like that. You, matter, you know better than to talk to me like that. And you know, I believe that the Lord loves the sound of our voices. But I think there are those times that he would want to say, you know better than to talk to me like this. When there is still unresolved brokenness in a relationship, there's a grudge, there's a hidden sin, that, the channel between us is impeded. You know it. What is it? What do we need to do to consecrate ourselves for this coming time of prayer? Perhaps it is just to, to repent of any kind of measure of neglect of prayer. Any way in which that we have allowed faith to grow cold. What is it? Is the worries of the world that we've been through this past year just sort of begun to sort of come heavy on us to a point where it's like, man, I just don't know what is happening. I just don't know anymore. Do we just need to cast that off and say, no, yes, I do know. I know in whom I have believed. What is it? What do you need to do this morning to consecrate yourself for this month of prayer? I'd like to invite you to embody that. Appreciate Brad mentioning fasting. You know, we fast for so many reasons, but one is that simple principle. It's similar to um, what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount where he talked about our money. He said, you know, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's kind of like our heart follows our money. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In some ways, it's the same with our bodies. How your body moves, your spirit will kind of follow. That's why I don't think I've ever come across a spot in the Bible uh, where we're instructed to sit and pray. Stand, kneel, prostrate. Yes, I just don't come across. Maybe you will. But this idea of just sort of casual. And yet I, we do it. I do it constantly. But there's something about our bodies. That's why we fast. It's just our body is praying. It's saying something to our spirit. You're hungry. Come on. You're thir- Make this your heart cry. You know, it just sort of does something in us. And so this morning, I'm wondering if we could embody consecration. We have plenty of space. If you're able and choose to, please don't feel any pressure. Don't feel guilt about sitting at all. But I'm wondering if you would be willing to kneel where you are, just to make your, your place there an altar. Maybe prostrate yourself. Would you, or open your hands or stand, or was there any position you would take that just is a posture of consecration? Oh God, I come before you today in all humility and ask you prepare me for this month of prayer. So if you will, just do that with me. Let's just take a position.
any way you wish. And I'll offer a prayer. And then Brad, you can come and lead us in our closing.